right. Uh, well, if we weren't uh, convicted enough, we're going to still talk about the tongue today. Taming the tongue. One of the sisters last Sunday said, Pastor, that was so convicting. <laughs> That's good, really, isn't it? It's good that we can still feel convicted. That's a precious thing. Keys to controlling our tongue. Today uh, is our uh, fifth message on this. Actually, it's the sixth. Uh, but uh, it is uh, entitled today, Trading Trifle for Treasure. Some authors have called it the divine exchange. When Christ died on the cross, God exchanged our sinful nature with His Son's holy nature. Jesus called it the new birth, a divine exchange. Everything has been flip-flopped. I exchanged hell for heaven. I exchanged heartache for hope and pointlessness for purpose. That's the divine exchange. The point is this morning that people who are part of God's kingdom are different than the rest of the world. They even think differently. They act differently for sure. They have different motives. And yes, as we'll see this morning, the apostle is going to remind the Ephesian church and us that when you are born again, when you have been part of that divine exchange, it ought to change your tongue. It ought to change your words, trading trifle for treasure. And that's the whole thing this morning. It's about an exchange, replacement. Let's all bow our heads for a prayer, if you would, please. Father, thank you for the wonderful truth of the fact that we've been redeemed. Lord, standing on the promises, all the beautiful promises that we've been reminded of this morning, both uh, by word and by song. Now, Lord, this morning, I pray you'll collect all of our thoughts. Lord, what a blessing this passage has been to my spirit this week as I've been studying and your word has been. Thank you for these amazing saints of God, Lord. Thank you for what's being accomplished here this morning and in this generation. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's open our Bibles to the book of Ephesians, if you would, the book of Ephesians. We're going to go to chapter 4. Now, when God recreates a person in Jesus Christ, it's something new, something different. Things change. I can remember being a child and not liking certain foods, and, and uh, now uh, I like those very same foods. It's been amazing how, as you mature, things change. Now, there's a few things I never liked and still don't. I don't like peas. Uh, my wife just loves them, but cooked peas, I don't know, I could start gagging on those things and uh, never have been able to take them. And nowadays, of course, the, my new thing I can't stand, I don't know why God made it, is kale. And uh, I know it's for some good reason, but it's not, for, it's not edible, I know that for sure. Um, <laughs> someone ought to start smoking kale. You know what, that's probably what it's for right there. I'm high on kale. But anyway... When God uh, recreates a person, they're different. Their appetites change. Now, in the book of Ephesians, Paul has uh, been very doctrinal, as is typical with most of the Pauline epistles. The first half of the book is uh, quite doctrinal. The second half of the book is quite practical. Always uh, a challenge for some people to uh, understand uh, 
uh, our position in Christ and then our disposition in Christ. You know, uh, there is a doctrinal side of Christian life where everything's settled, but then there is a practical side where we have to do something, and that's what this is. It's going to talk about being part of that exchange. So he's going to get specific. You have been transformed. You were part of the devil's kingdom. God, God made you part of his kingdom. You have all these wonderful things in the heavenlies. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians is just a, a great, great book. Then he comes here to this passage in chapter 4. And uh, as we're talking about the tongue, it's a great passage to remind us of five specific categories which our tongue transformation takes place. A true Christian does these five things with his tongue. Number one, he replaces lying with legitimacy. And in each case, it's a replacement. You may have heard of replacement theology. Well, that's not what this is. It's just replacing our uh, old life with our new life. It's the divine exchange. Let's read verse 25 together. If you would, please. Ready? Begin. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Replace lying with truth. Notice the very first word in that sentence, wherefore. Wherefore, or because of, or based on. Based on the fact that we have new life in Christ, then it ought to be your goal to put away lying. Take off the old and put on the new. Now, when we, uh, Brother Mike, uh, by the way, thank you for the good word. When we first started, uh, Brother Mike, uh, I went from being a pastor pastor to a construction pastor. And uh, for those first couple of years, I worked seven days a week. Four days doing construction and three days being a pastor. It was interesting because uh, groups of people knew me in both worlds. Now, some folks who came on Sunday only knew me on Sunday. And if they ever saw me with my construction clothes on, they were like, wow, pastor, I didn't know you looked like that. And uh, then there were other people who only knew me out in the construction world where I'd pick up parts and things. And then maybe sometimes they'd come to church and say, boy, you clean up real good. <laughs> You put on something new. You were wearing these old clothes, and look at you. I mean, you were a mess the last time I saw you. You put on this new clothes. You have been transformed, and that's what God is saying. He is saying you ought to put on this new. You certainly shouldn't lie. What is a lie? Well, it is a statement, or an act even. It is a statement designed to deceive another person pretty straightforward. A lie is intended to deceive. Now, there are two motivations usually for most lying. The first one is to hurt another person. The lie is directed at somebody, and our desire is to hurt them. There's a second common motivation, and that is to help ourselves. So, to hurt someone else or to help ourselves. Now, why do we want to do that? Oftentimes, it's because of fear we're going to get in trouble, or it's just because of pride. We want to feel like we're better than somebody else. So lying is uh, just uh, a deception. That's why he says here in uh, this verse, he says, speak every man, speak. Now, he wants us to speak every man. 
not just some, but every man, truth with his neighbor. Now, you may not know this, but this is actually a quote from the Old Testament. Paul loves to quote the Old Testament. Did you know that almost every book in the Old Testament is quoted in the New Testament? Uh, Zechariah chapter 8 and verse 16. Now, in that particular chapter of Zechariah, the wonderful prophet is reminding the people that when you come back to our homeland, they had been in Babylonian captivity, when you come back, we're going to need to get things back on track. We're going to need to get our government on track. We're going to need to get our judiciary on track. We're going to need to get our religion back on track. We're going to need to get our homes and our, our lives. And the way that's going to be done, and he gives a list of several things, but one of the key ways, everybody must go forward speaking truth. Every husband has to speak truth to his wife. Every wife has to speak truth to her husband. Every politician needs to speak truth. Every judge needs to speak truth. Now, as in so many of the cases in the prophetical books, there's always a double mention. So it's we're talking about something that was happening then, and then something that was happening in the future, a millennial promise. What God was saying is, is that one characteristic of the thousand-year millennial reign that's coming, it's coming. One characteristic is going to be that everybody speaks truth. Won't that be an amazing thing? Everybody will speak truth with his neighbor. And uh, you'll hear somebody speak and you'll say, that's the absolute truth. Because you know it, that's the key of the area. Now, line, that's what God wants. In the kingdom of God, we ought to have a little bit of millennial kingdom here. We ought to speak truth. Lying is one of the chief characteristics of humanity today. From Wall Street to Walgreens, from North Pole to South Pole, from East to West, pretty much our entire world system is based on lying. Salesmen lie. Advertisers lie. Politicians lie. Governments lie. Doctors lie. Teachers lie. Even religions lie. People lie about little things they don't even have to lie about, but they do. They lie about big things. It's an entire way of life. Now, why is that? Because we have a depraved, sinful nature. Humanity lies because of its father. The father of all lies is the devil. Satan lies. He lies about what life, real life is all about. He lies about death. He lies about God. He lies about the Holy Spirit and Christ. He lies about the Bible. He lies about heaven. He lies about hell. He lies about what's good. He lies about what's bad. But when Christ comes into our life, there's a whole change because He is the way and the what? The truth and the life. In fact, uh, it's saying there that Christ is truth. When we speak truth, we actually are speaking Christ. What it's saying here is that we ought to speak truth. We oughtn't lie. Now, there are a lot of ways to lie. Cheating is lying. Failure to keep your promises, especially to God, is lying. Betrayal of a confidence that you said you would keep is lying. We're not talking about helping somebody, but we're talking about uh, betrayal, flattering somebody just to get something is lying. Half-truths, perhaps the most dangerous of all falsehoods is distorted truth. It's been said a half-truth is really a whole lie. Excuses, refusing to take responsibility. All of this is simply lying. Now, what is God saying here? He is saying we should not lie, but He gives a reason why we shouldn't lie. Look at the last part of the verse. 
because we are members one of another. Now, there's a lot of teaching in the book of Ephesians about the body, the body of Christ. What is it? It is the church of Jesus Christ. He's saying we are all part of this body. We have hands in this body. Thank God for the hands. Thank God for the feet and for the, uh, the hands who play instruments and the mouths who sing and for those precious people who serve in so many ways. We are part of this body. And he's saying a body can only function if they are truthful with each other. If one part of the body is lying, it's going to be a disaster. That only makes practical sense. Let's imagine for a moment that uh, my uh, eye decided that it was just tired of always being taken for granted and it just, the nose, uh, it just got upset at the nose. Nose was always sticking out there first. Nose always going where it couldn't go. I mean, it just got tired of always looking at the nose. So let's imagine that the eye decided it was going to miscalculate distance. And so I'm walking towards the door. And the eye says, uh, it's, uh, it's still three feet away, but it's only a couple inches away. And I run into the door with my nose. Oh, my nose. And the eyes are laughing. <laughs> oh, I got you because you always think you're, you always think you're so big. You got the nose out there, but uh, now it just doesn't work. And in a body, it doesn't work if people don't coordinate. And that's what he's saying here. The body of Christ must be truthful with each other or it cannot function properly. We cannot minister to each other. We can't love each other. We can't pray for each other if we don't know the truth. Truth, you know, is the basis of any good relationship. I'll say that again. Truth is the basis for any good relationship. Lying ruins marriages. Lying hurts children. Lying decimates our integrity. Lying drives people away from us. They don't want to be around us because they know we're a liar. And that's what it says here in this verse. It says, for one another's sake. We are members of one another. Because we're so close, because we live in such close proximity, because we're so dependent upon each other, one another. That's the concept here. Because we're so close to one another in the family of God, we must communicate truth. We have to connect in the area of truth. You can't lie to each other. You know, these amazing big sequoia redwoods up here in the hills and the mountains are just incredible. People come from all over the world to see them. Some of them are as tall as 300 feet tall. 300 feet. I mean, this ceiling is maybe 24 feet. Imagine something 10 times taller. We're talking something or more than that. It's just unbelievably tall. And yet for such a tall tree, did you know they have just a quite shallow root system? In fact, uh, the reason being because they don't get a lot of uh, moisture for such a big giant tree. And so they keep the roots uh, close to the surface and they spread it out in all directions so they can get as much moisture as they can. What keeps those big old redwood trees from just toppling over then? That's because they intertwine their root system. You know, there's actually very few sequoia trees that stand alone. They all are in clusters, in groups. That's because they connect to each other, and they are so closely connected that that's, that's the only way they can stand. And that's the only way that we can function, is if we connect one another in truth. This week, as I was doing some studying, I read one author who uh, had something he called an honesty challenge. 
It was intriguing to me because I've thought of many people who maybe have been Christians for many years taking this honesty challenge. And here was his challenge. He said, for seven days, I was committed to being truthful about everything, not only, of course, the big things, but even in the smallest thing. I would take responsibilities if I um, just forgot something. I would take responsibility and just say, I didn't do it. I you know, purposely put it aside or whatever. I would just be honest. I'd be honest. For seven days, I will be honest about everything. And I'm not talking about brutal with other people or give myself a license to be critical or mean. I'm just talking about just speaking the truth, acting in truth, a seven-day honesty challenge. He talked about a 21-day or a 30-day. He said, you know, it was amazingly challenging to speak truth about everything for seven solid days. He said, I was surprised for myself, but you know, it is a fact that I think all of us need to remind ourselves, no lying, no lying about anything. If we make an appointment, keep an appointment. If we, uh, if we do something and we fail to do it, take responsibility. No excuses, no putting it off on anybody else, no saying this, no saying that, just speaking the truth. God wants us to not lie because now that we're a Christian, we replace lying with truth or legitimacy. There is a second thing that we do to have a tongue transformation, and that is we replace rage with restraint. Look at verse 26. Let's read that together, please. Ready? Begin. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Now, I got to tell you, this is actually one of the most unique verses in all of the New Testament. I have often just scratched my head at this one. Here we find the command of God to be angry. Be ye angry. And now it is absolutely a command to be angry. You cannot read this verse any other way. It's exactly what it's saying. It is a positive command. Now here's the idea that I think Paul is trying to get across. Here's what the Holy Spirit is telling us. We should have indignation about some things. We should feel outrage at certain things, shocked, and we should be grieved. I'm not talking about being ticked off. We're talking about an inner grief. The Greek word actually means provoked or exasperated. That maybe exasperated is actually a very good meaning for us in the English world. Exasperated. Certain things ought to exasperate us. And I will tell you, it is impossible to live in 2019 without getting exasperated at certain things. Certain things are just not right. And I will tell you, any person that cannot be grieved at the corrupting of, that Hollywood is doing to our children or the corrupting that the public school system is doing to so many children or false religion sending people to hell, if we cannot feel outrage about that, there's something wrong with us. We ought to be angry at that. But here's the point. Never let it degenerate to some kind of personal resentment. Don't take it personal, Paul said. Get angry, get outraged, be indignant, be upset, be grieved, but don't let it degenerate into resentment. Are you angry, pastor, at the uh, abortion clinics? Are you angry at what's going on? I am. I'm grieved. I'm outraged about that. 
But am I going to go take a gun and shoot them? No. That's letting the anger get to resentment. He said, be angry, be outraged. Martin Luther said, uh, sometimes I can do most things well. When I'm angry, I can do all things well. Meaning, when I get this, uh, this passion inside of me for God, this holy outrage, it allows me to just do things I never thought possible. Really, honestly, for much of the fact, getting uh, preaching is a sense of getting outraged about some sin and then uh, finding Scripture to help us deal with that. We ought to be outraged. In fact, uh, David said in Psalm 97, verse 10, and David was outraged at so many things. He was a tremendous leader for his country. But look what he says, ye that love the Lord hate evil. That's a very strong word. We need to hate evil. There are some things that we should hate, but God said, be angry, but don't sin. Be outraged, be indignant, be exasperated, be grieved, but don't sin. Someone once well said that, remember, anger is only one letter short of danger. And if you, don't, if you allow that anger to go, it's going to become very dangerous. Someone else well said, don't fly into rage unless you're prepared for a rough landing. I think there's one Bible character who gives us an example of someone who got angry righteously, but allowed it to go to sin, and that was Moses. Moses was righteously angry at the mistreatment of God's people, but he let it go too far. He let it get bitter and resentful. Notice what it says, don't sin. Be angry, but don't sin. You know what the word there is? It is the Greek word amartel. It is the word for missing the mark. Don't get outside of the boundaries. Play hard, but play inside the boundaries. Work hard, but stay inside the goal lines. Make sure that you don't miss the mark. Then he says something which is just incredible. He said, don't let the sun go down upon your wrath. Don't go let the sun go down upon those evil or those mad things that you said. If you do it, deal with it. If you do something angry, then take care of it. I mean, it's pretty hard for any of us, all of us, to always be on top, never be angry uh, about something in the wrong way. He said, make sure that you take care of it as soon as possible. Notice how he says it. He said, don't sleep on it. Don't let the sun go down. The whole point is we should make sure we deal with it as soon as possible. Within seconds, within minutes, within hours, certainly don't let the sun go down upon your wrath. I read of one man who said he had been married for 50 years. He had been married for 50 years, and he said, honestly, there was never been one time in my entire 50 years of being married to this woman that I've ever gone to bed angry. He did concede that he went 10 days one time without sleep. <laughs> and, um, but the fact is, never get angry. And don't let the sun go dead upon your wrath, because notice what happens, verse 27. If you do that, you're going to give place to the devil. The word place there is a Greek word, topas. We get our word topography from it. It means, literally, it means opportunity, but actually, the actual word means toehold or a small little place. Don't give a toehold to the devil. Don't give him any place 
to get his foot in the door, because if you let him get his foot in the door, I mean, who knows where he's going to go. A mountain climber scales mountains. They don't need a four-lane highway to get to the top of that mountain. All they need is an ice pick, some ropes, and a toehold. And I will tell you, the devil can use the smallest foothold And inch by inch, he gets victory in our life because we have allowed him to have a foothold. And here what he says is anger allows him to have a foothold. The word devil there is the word diabolos. We saw that last week, which is slanderer. The point is, don't let the one who is an evil speaker, don't let him get a foothold by using your mouth for evil and for bad things. For me... Uh, here's how I do it. I have uh, come to a point in my life where uh, I see these outrages as opportunities. We, uh, let me give you an example. Recently, uh, I had some fellows that were around me that were extremely loud, and they were just obnoxious fellows, and they were dropping the F-bomb about every other uh, second, and uh, it soon became apparent they were smoking dope. We were kind of in a little trapped environment, and so we couldn't really get away, and so I had to endure this for a lot longer than I certainly wanted. Now, that was repugnant. First of all, it was just uh, rude. It was obnoxious. Nobody should do that. So uh, I have two hats I wear. As a citizen, I was outraged. As a citizen, I was uh, grieved at just this situation. It was just, it was terrible. And honestly, I think I had a right to as a citizen, as a human being, as just a person that lives in a community. But as a minister, I have another hat. As a minister, I just see this as people I can reach for Jesus. In other words, the idea here is that we see these outrages as opportunities. Paul said, look, be angry. See it as an opportunity though. Don't get angry. Don't, don't, don't let it get you bitter. Don't let it get you resentful. Be proactive. That's what he said in the book of Romans. He said, overcome evil with good. Reach out and make something. Uh, these people need Jesus Christ. Replace rage with restraint. It's the exchanged life. Number three, uh, if we want to transform our tongue, we want to replace stealing with sharing. Verse 28. Now this may not at first seem like it's relating to the tongue, but I think you'll see as it is. Verse 28, let him that steal or stole, excuse me, get the right uh, verbiage here. He that stole, steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands, a thing which is good, that he may have to give him that it needeth. Sadly, part of our human existence today is theft, dishonesty. It is uh, unbelievable. I mean, Almost nobody that has any sort of banking anymore has not been touched in one way or another by cybercrime. It is unbelievable. And now, of course, in places like here in California, we passed that crazy Proposition 47 a couple of years ago where, um, you know, any, uh, anything under $1,000 is, is a misdemeanor and uh, probably won't be prosecuted. So now what's happening, places like San Francisco... Some of these uh, fellows, or uh, ladies, I guess, are walking into these stores, and they are actually judging how much they steal. They're not even trying to hide it. They just walk in, 
take it out, stuff on their pockets, and walk out. And because they know the police have other things to do, and because of this proposition, they won't prosecute them. It's just ridiculous. I mean, you talk about theft. Having a store anymore is just unbelievable. That's what the cybercrime is going out of, and uh, just actual theft. But that is the world's way, and it's not anything new. In fact, in some ancient cultures, it was considered smart if you stole from somebody. You were a very smart person if you could steal from somebody. Here, the Holy Spirit says, Christians, don't steal. <laughs> I don't care what any culture does. I don't care what happens. Don't be a thief. And, uh, and, I, and I like how he says to deal with it. If you steal, uh, steal no more. <laughs> Pastor, uh, what suggestions do you have uh, about uh, for me to cure my shoplifting? Don't do it anymore. That's exactly what he's saying here. I don't think you need a drug. I don't think you need therapy. Just don't do it anymore. You don't have to be a Greek scholar. But actually, he does give a, a positive way. Notice what he says. But rather, if you have a problem with stealing, here's how you cure it. Go to work. Labor. <laughs> what? Yep. Go to work. Labor. And specifically, <laughs> specifically working with your hands. Go to work. Well, I work really hard on the computer. Well, that's, it is hard work. I'll agree. It can be. But we're talking about with your hands. Working with your hands. If you have a problem with shoplifting, cybercrime, theft, big or small, whatever it is, work with your hands. Get busy with your hands, that which is good. But then he didn't just leave it there. <laughs> so you want me to work with my hands. Yep. Get a blue-collar job or go out there in that garden or whatever. Work hard. Then he says, what I want you to do is any money you collect from that, I want you to give it away. What? What? Yep, that's the cure. That's the cure for thievery. I want you to work with your hands. You know, back in the day, the, the prison systems had a pretty good idea where they'd have people making gravel out of big old giant boulders, you know, and uh, you always need gravel. And uh, these guys would take those sledgehammers hour after hour, day after day. And, and now, of course, that's uh, too uh, hard for those guys to do, but uh, that's a pretty good idea. Here's what God is saying here. He said, work so you can give it away. You know, I thank God for so many people here at the home church. They work so that they can support their family and give to the ministry. Now, how does that relate to the tongue? Well, I think it relates to the tongue as it does in 1 Timothy 5 and verse 13. He's speaking uh, specifically about uh, widows uh, that uh, need to learn, to, uh, same for men as well, but um, he said that they should learn not to be idle, wandering from house to house, tattlers and busybodies, speaking things which they are. Work hard. Work so hard that you'll be so tired, you won't have any time to be out there gossiping. That's the point. You won't have any time to be out there. I mean, you'll be so tired, you won't even have time to text anybody. You won't have time to do anything. You're just going to be so tired. A woman decided she was going to stop gossiping. She felt like she'd had a loose tongue, and so she purposed that she was not going to do that anymore. She felt that she must get out there and get busy with her hands and do something. And so she saw some projects around the house that desperately needed her help. And so she went out there, started working in her yard with a weed whacker. 
and accidentally she cut off the tail of her cat. She ran screaming into the house, told her husband, wondering what to do. He looked at her, calmly said, get the cat, get the tail, and we'll take them to Walmart. She was incredulous. She was upset. Honey, that's my cat. How could, you, how could going to Walmart possibly help? Well, he said, they're the world's largest retailer. <laughs> yes, get to work and put that cat, put that tail on that cat. Well, anyway, I just had to say that one. Anyway, verse 4. <laughs> Quit gossiping and start working. And we love cats around here, don't? I'm not a cat hater. I like cats. But anyway, verse number four. The fourth uh, tongue transformer. Replace destruction with construction. Verse 29 and 30. Now, he said, here's how we do this thing. Don't let any corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. But that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. The word corrupt there is the word sapros, meaning rotten, as in rotten vegetables, rotten fruit. I'm telling you, some things are so stinky. We had some beans in the refrigerator. I don't know how, it, but it got way back in the back corner. And uh, we were cleaning out the refrigerator, opened that little top. Poo, you talk about a hydrogen bomb. Poof. I mean, that was a... That was a weapon of mass destruction right there. And uh, one time I had, a, I, when I play tennis so much, I, I usually take an a egg with me, a, a boiled egg. And uh, one time I forgot that thing. And uh, I put it in my tennis bag and left it in the tennis bag in front of my bug. And uh, it was there for four or five days and uh, I wasn't playing tennis. And Boy, I thought, man, what is wrong with my bug? I mean, this thing smells so funny. I thought it was maybe water had creeped up inside the cab or something. But I mean, it just got, and I mean, every day it got worse. Finally, when I went to the, get my tennis bag open, I opened that thing up. I practically passed out. That rotten, that old egg had become rotten. That's what this is talking about. It is saying, it is terrible when comes out of a believer's mouth is rotten, like a rotten egg or something like that. We uh, have uh, problems in America with so much uh, pollution. There's uh, noise pollution and there's uh, water pollution and there's pollution of all kinds. But there is one pollution that is often overlooked and that is verbal pollution, grumbling and complaining and criticizing. I like what uh, Charles Swindoll, a great uh, author and um, president of Dallas Theological Seminary, he called it the poison of pessimism. It creates an atmosphere of toxic negativism. And we so often find that toxicity in relationships because we just are busy saying our words in homes and offices and in churches. People just Letting things, notice what it says, proceed out of their mouth. Circle that word, proceed. It means to project forth. <laughs> and with, if you'll allow me to be real plain here, it means to spew something out of the mouth. I mean, just bleh. The idea is it just comes out like a projectile. And once it comes out, you can't stop it. And some of the words that we speak are like bullets out of the muzzle of a gun. And once it comes out, it projects. You can't get it back. 
So what should we do? Three constructive ways to speak. Number one, our speech should be edifying. Instead, make your speech edifying. That which is good to the use of edifying. Our speech should build people up. The actual word there is the word for building something, building a house. We got to build our house, foundation, walls, roof, build it, don't tear it down. When I come in contact with people, do they come away built up in Jesus Christ? That's the idea here. When you come in contact with people, are you building up the name of Jesus? Are you building up the cause of Christ? Now, I may not even mention the name of Christ, but my tone or my mannerisms or what I talk about just reflects the attitude of Christ. Someone once said, I'm not sure if they've done studies on this or what, but it sounds pretty smart to me. 90% of problems in life with people are the tone of your voice. Only 10% of conflicts are due to differences of opinion. 90% delivery and tone. People who work in the business world will tell you it is the tone. It's the tone. It's all about the delivery. It's all of, most communication is nonverbal. Really is. The, the majority of the way we communicate is nonverbal. I mean, my words only are a part of how we communicate. My face, my word, the tone of my voice. Uh, you know, it, um, it, there's such a huge issue here by the way we edify and build people up. I, uh, I remember one time listening to myself on a tape recorder thinking, that's just not me. But boy, I tell you one thing, once you listen to yourself, you're like, boy, I need to change. Mom's face as she shrills at her children. Can't you do anything right? What's wrong with you? Our face, our tone, dad's countenance as he raises his voice. You never learn. You're always breaking something. Let me do it. The fact is... Uh, we often communicate so much, not only with our words, but with our tone. That doesn't mean that uh, we can't say negative things. I think we must say negative things. The Bible has quite a bit of negative things. If we don't say negative things, we are going to raise a snowflake generation. But the idea here is that as we say whatever we say, let's let it be edifying, building up. Not only should it be edifying, but it should be fitting. Notice that little phrase, but that which is good to the use, it actually means it is as fits the need. That's the concept, as fits the need, appropriate. It is appropriate for that person. Uh, Paul said, I am all things to all men. 30 plus years ago, uh, I was in contact with a pastor and his wife, and we were together for a bit of a time. We were about the same age, and uh, in the course of the conversation, I called his wife by her first name. She corrected me and said, I'm Mrs. So-and-so. I thought she was actually kidding me, but, uh, but I, so I really didn't say much about it, you know. A little bit later on, I said her name again, and she looked at me, and in no uncertain terms, she said, I am Mrs. So-and-so. I thought, dear Jesus, that is one tightly wound woman right there. And uh, I'm sure she wore her high heels right to bed. The fact is, folks, we are not to be snooty people. And that's what it's saying here is we ought to be appropriate for the moment. 
I don't think I should wear a th- full-on suit and, uh, may, and go in and talk to the little uh, two-year-olds about Jesus Christ, you know, and stand there and, and uh, say all these big theological words. We ought to get down to their level and be with them. That's what it's saying here, to the use of, to the use of. It is befitting. Another word might be tactful. You know, with this, I mentioned uh, a balancing truth. You know, a honesty challenge is a great concept, but that doesn't mean we're supposed to be um, inelegant, as the politicians might say, unartful, <laughs> untactful. We don't have to be tactless. I'm not talking about political correctness here. I'm talking about using tact as we say truth. I like what, again, I read, a, I remember reading years ago a a little uh, short story by Charles Wendell called Tact. And uh, he used the greatest illustration of tact. He said, you know, good tact is like a girdle on a woman. It doesn't change the truth. It just rearranges the facts. (laughs) And uh, I thought, you know, that's a pretty good idea right there. Um, We can say things in a way, we can rearrange it so it's tactful. And God said, uh, build people up, be edifying. Number two, be befitting. Make sure it's the right uh, plan for the right people. Don't be snooty. Don't be above anybody. Uh, Don't, you know, uh, poor mouth it. Just uh, be befitting. And then number three, be helping. It ought to minister grace to the hearers. Everybody has to hear what I say. I'm going to talk Now, we've all heard people who talk just to hear themselves talk, and maybe we've been in that category before. Talk just to hear ourselves talk. But the fact is, someone's going to hear what I say. Is it going to minister grace or grumbling? Grace or griping? What is it going to be? Is it going to be the grace of God, or is it going to be something that is going to give them a, a bad day? Am I actually... The word minister is the word serve. It's actually the word for waiting on somebody. I'm going to serve up something to the person I'm with. I'm going to serve them up a dish. What's in that dish? A blessing or something bad? I want to give them something good. Is somebody better for having heard me today or are they worse off? It's nothing, you know, right to complain about the you know, whatever, complain about the weather, complain about that, as long as it's done good-naturedly, as long as we turn it around to a blessing. The idea is that we're all in the ministry as believers. And you know, that's one of the key differences I've noticed between believing people and non-believers. Non-believers are in it for themselves. I mean, I'm here to get money. I'm here to, you know, get career. I'm here to have fun, whatever. It's me, me, me. Believers set out every day to be a blessing to the world. Some people live in cities, other people build cities. Some people go out there just to get, others give. And that's what he's saying here. You are in the ministry. Now that you have Christ, you have a transformed concept. You have a new purpose for life. Your purpose is to wake up every morning and to be a blessing. Now, if you get some joy along the way, great. If you have some fun along the way, great. If you enjoy some good food along the way, wonderful. If you get some successes along the way, great. It's wonderful. I've given all these things richly for you to enjoy. But your main goal is to minister every day. I wake up every morning as a husband. I'm to minister to my wife. Wives, you're to minister to your husband. Fathers, you're to minister to your children. Children, you're to minister to your parents. 
We're to minister to our grandchildren. We're to minister to our friends. Every day we are in the ministry. And what are we supposed to minister? We're supposed to minister grace. We're supposed to minister the grace of God. The word grace there is a gift. Charis. It is to give something to somebody. And we'll go on to see next week, or I guess in two weeks, we're going to go on to see that it's giving something they really don't deserve. We're going to give them grace. Now, all of the things we've said so far are very practical. Now he drops the hammer. Look at verse 30. He's going to drop the doctrinal hammer on us. Now, here is why what we're talking about is a very serious matter for a believer. And we're not just talking about being tactful for, to be tactful. We're not talking about just making sure we are positive just to be positive. To be an encourager just to be an encourager. We're not talking about just being nice or don't gossip. There's a serious reason why we should do this. Look at verse 30. In fact, read it with me, please. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Now, first, let me say very quickly what this does not say. It is not saying you can grieve away the Holy Spirit by your gossip or your bad speaking. It does not say that. Nobody can ever grieve away the Spirit of God. Once you are saved, you are, as it says here, sealed until the day of redemption. Sealed. God has His mark of ownership on each one, so you'll never be lost. And He's just uh, making sure you understand that. One dear sister told me last week, she said, you know what, Pastor, if I didn't know I was born again and saved and sealed by God, I would sure doubt my salvation as we talk about the tongue, because it really, it's such a, such a challenge for me, and I understand that concept. But here, very clearly, God says, no doubt, put that off the table, you are sealed until the day of redemption. But because you are, you need to know something. Your relationship with the Holy Spirit is precious. It's not a given. Don't take him for granted. He is a person. Did you know that the word grieve there is actually a love word? It is a word which is used when a husband loves his wife or a wife loves her husband. And actually, the, the key way it's used is when a person, that husband or wife, betrays by having an affair. They have an affair, the betrayal, the devastation, the hurt, the wound is so deep, it is so hard, it is so tragic that you become grieved. When you've been one and that person did what they did, it's just, it rips you apart. It's a, the cleaving rips apart. It's just a terrible feeling. And God said, that's what you do to the Holy Spirit. Because every day the Holy Spirit never sleeps and he longs for us. He thinks, he says, oh, I want Tim to have a nice day. And so he puts things into my life. It's the Holy Spirit who brings these beautiful blessings into my life. It's the Holy Spirit who confirms in my spirit that he loves me. It's the Holy Spirit that tells me, you have the peace of God. It's the Holy Spirit that whispers in my ear these things and those things. It is the Holy Spirit that has a deep, precious relationship with me. The Holy Spirit is shocked 
when he hears the things coming out of my mouth that have been so distasteful, so corrupt, so hurtful. He's hurt. He pulls back. He grieved. He is grieved. He's grieved. My friend, it's not as simple as just, oh, I need to work on my gossip. It's not as simple as just, oh, I really need to stop lying. I really should start being more friendly. God said we grieve the Holy Spirit. These precious caregivers we have here at the home church are amazing people. I just, I just am so grateful for from kindergarten all the way through all the ages. Sometimes you'll hear some of them say, all right, children. <laughs> the other day on a Monday, I think it was, I was here in the office and uh, Brother John came by, uh, John Ridge came by with his workers and uh, there's about uh, 12 or 13 little ducklings behind him and they're all just walking along and he was saying, okay, be quiet now. You know, we're going to go by the pastors. We're going by the offices. So use your inside voice. Be quiet. The Holy Spirit is my inside voice. He's inside of me. When God spoke to the Old Testament prophet, one time he spoke by an earthquake. We get that. Other times it's a fire. But so often we miss the inside voice, the Holy Spirit speaking. But because we've grieved him, we can't hear him anymore. We can't hear him. We lose our ability to hear that inside voice. And often it's the inside voice that the Holy Spirit speaks in. You know you're growing in Christ when you can hear that inside voice, the promptings, the cautions, the person of the Holy Spirit. You know, Christianity is so unique in all religions out there, if you want to call Christianity a religion, because it's not a set of ideas or an influence, a system of philosophy. Judaism is about laws, and Buddhism um, is a system of morals, and Islam is all about prayers. Christianity, it's all about a person. It's about a relationship with Christ, and more specifically, it is about the indwelling Holy Spirit. This matter of uh, taming our tongue is serious business, because without it, we lose the sensitivity of the Holy Spirit. And He is what makes life just fantastic. We can go through life, but I'm telling you what, with the Holy Spirit, sensitive to the Holy Spirit, it's, a, as the one uh, author said, it is, life is a continual feast with the Holy Spirit. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.